Hey, good morning. This is Emily Austin for Faithfully Memphis. I am from the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee, and I am delighted to bring you another episode of Faithfully Memphis this week. Um, Today is September the 8th, 2022. And later in the program, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation that I uh, had with two of my friends earlier this week. Um, Their names are Denise Hensley and Jesse Abel. They are two spiritual, well, let me, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. They are my friends and they are people who got kind of wet my appetite for the idea of spiritual directors and spiritual direction. That's a term that we hear bandied around a lot and I actually didn't really know what they were talking about. I always kind of Whenever people brought up the idea of spiritual directors and spiritual direction, I always kind of felt like, oh, so that is like, like therapy, but for religion. (laughs) And uh, thanks to people like Denise and Jesse, they put me on the right path and kind of explained to me what spiritual direction is. And so I'm delighted to have them on the show uh, later to talk about their journeys through the practice of spiritual direction, um, both as people who have been directors, but also as people who have been in relationship with spiritual directors and have had their spiritual lives um, greatly impacted in positive ways in those relationships. Um, but first, it, we today's kind of a special day here in Memphis. Um, I don't know if you know why, but today is the eve of the Feast of the Martyrs of Memphis. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me go back a little bit first. If you grew up in Memphis and then went away for a little while, like I did, there are certain things about growing up in Shelby County, growing up in Memphis and the surrounding areas that you kind of take for granted. I I always knew that Elvis was a big deal. I mean, the cultural significance kind of pops up on national uh, TV programs when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. So I knew Elvis was a big deal. Um, I didn't know until I moved to Chicago for graduate school in, I guess, 2004 or so, that St. Jude was a big deal. I always kind of thought that St. Jude's Research Hospital was like a really special place in Memphis and it was a place that, you know, the community surrounded in a, in a positive light. But I, it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I realized, oh my gosh, like, I'll tell you what happened. I was uh, going to a fabric store right up the street uh, from my apartment and it was a national chain. And when I checked out, the cashier asked me if I wanted to make a donation to St. Jude. And, and I, and, and I was kind of taken aback by that. I was like, Oh yeah, sure. I'd love to. It's kind of cool that y'all are supporting this Memphis hospital. And then it occurred to me, okay, no, it's not Memphis. The St. Jude is way bigger than just Memphis. Um, there's a cultural significance to it that knows no bounds geographic or otherwise. Um, and, and it's kind of the same way with the martyrs of Memphis. Um, I grew up hearing about the martyrs of Memphis and I knew that they were closely aligned with the yellow fever epidemic of the late 1800s in Memphis, but I didn't recognize at the time that, um, their significance was really much larger than what we reflect on here as people who are just from Memphis. So the martyrs of Memphis uh, refer to four women, four Episcopal nuns who stayed in Memphis uh, during the worst months of the yellow fever epidemic in 1878. Um, And their names were Constance, Thecla, Ruth, and Francis. And they were four women, Episcopal nuns, that were that had come to Memphis from New England and 
We're serving as faculty at uh, St. Mary's School for Girls, um, which is still operational today um, in Memphis, St. Mary's School. And during that time, I mean, the yellow fever was just was just destroying Memphis. Uh, people who could leave were leaving, and there, but there were lots of sick and dying people who couldn't afford to leave. A lot of orphans, I mean, after their parents died from this awful disease, they had to stick around. And it was these women and one priest that cared for them. I don't know that they ever uh, anticipated the sacrifices that they were going to make when they agreed to come and be teachers in Memphis, Tennessee, but they made the ultimate sacrifice. And um, the Feast of the Martyrs of Memphis um, is celebrated on September the 9th because that was the day that Constance um, died from the yellow fever. And so I have to remember and remind myself constantly that these were real people, even though we remember them on a calendar and we pray for them and celebrate them every September 9th, not just here in Memphis and in our local Episcopal community, but throughout the Anglican Communion, which, as we talked about earlier this summer on Faithfully Memphis, encompasses churches here in America and abroad. These are people that all over the world were celebrating and remembering the sacrifices that they made. I think that sometimes we have the proclivity to extract to kind of think oh well that was a long time ago and there's no way that we can hold ourselves to those kind of sacrificial standards and those standards of just ultimate love and devotion to a community but i see us doing it every single day in small ways sometimes they're big sometimes they're small it's not lost on me that at the time that i'm recording this um we're as a community here in Memphis, we are reeling over the events of earlier last week when uh, a young lady, uh, Eliza Fletcher, was kidnapped. And a couple days ago, we found out that she lost her life. She was a, a teacher at St. Mary's um, Episcopal School today. She, she was an elementary school student or excuse me, an elementary uh, early childhood preschool teacher. And it's not lost on me that the kind of humility and love for others, and the least of these, as Jesus calls them, uh, that's something that we can be living out in our life every single day. Um, it's not lost on me that I work um, literally meters away from where these incredible selfless acts were completed over a hundred years ago. Um, and I like to kind of immerse myself in that spirit whenever I feel cynical or I feel like the work that I do doesn't really matter. Um, and I would encourage you to do the same. Look for the people in your life and maybe they're not in your life. Maybe it's somebody that you read about or someone that you hear about on social media who through small actions are, or through big actions are making a big impact and, and bring it home. Just like the martyrs of Memphis. Um, these are incredibly heroic people who really have something that they can teach us even to this day. Um, this weekend on uh, Sunday, there will be a celebration of the Holy Eucharist um, at St. Mary's Cathedral, especially um, honoring the martyrs of Memphis. Um, and that'll be at 10 a.m. Uh, 700 Poplar Avenue in Memphis, and I'll be there, and a lot of other wonderful people will be there, um, and I invite you to join us um, for that celebration, or just, you know, or I think that they have a, a live stream, so you can join them online. Anyway, happy Feast of the Martyrs of Memphis Eve. I'll be right back. <laughs> 
spiritual direction. Jesse, when you and I first met, one of the first terms that you bandied around a lot was spiritual direction. And at the time, I kind of was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm totally know what you're talking about. That's, But I grew up in the church, but it wasn't something that I really had. I was like, oh, well, is that like therapy? Is that like church therapy? <laughs> and and you, you were very thoughtful about it. And you said, you didn't say no, but then you kind of offered up a better understanding of to me of what spiritual direction is and so from that I just I have a feeling that I'm not the only person out there that has heard about spiritual direction is intrigued by it but doesn't really know what it is how it plays in the lives of people who are searching for something outside of um, what they normally get you know on a Sunday morning or however they choose to engage with their faith community. Will you, in a nutshell, it might be a really big nutshell, but do you want to kind of give the same explanation, the lay, the literal lay person's uh, uh, explanation of what spiritual direction is? Wow. Uh, so I can try. Um, I'm sort of chuckling over here because at least sort of in my circle, of people that work in spiritual direction, we sort of universally agree that it's not a great label. Um, I still have to hear how, how Denise feels about that. But it's sort of in, in this um, era of Christianity, it sort of is the typical label that we use, and yet I don't know that it's the best description. So like you said, like it, it is sort of in, in ways a helping role where a spiritual director will listen to someone who is um, seeking to grow in their spirituality and to come closer to God. But it is not like other helping professions. Um, and just as an aside, if people want to see like how those different things sort of differ, there's a, a group, a professional group called Spiritual Directors International, and they have a really helpful chart that sort of compares all these different helping roles and how they're alike and different. But I guess probably what I said to you is that spiritual direction is sort of like life coaching for spirituality. Um, and yet having said that, I don't think that is the most apt description either. Because in spiritual direction, I'm not necessarily trying to teach anyone anything. I'm not trying to get them to change. I'm really there uh, to walk the journey with them. And... For, for that reason, I think some people like the term um, like spiritual accompaniment or soul tending. Soul tending to me seems to be a little more like smacks of like pastoral counseling. So I don't particularly love that one either. Um, but the way I approach spiritual direction is that I feel like people often have a sense of God and a sense of spirituality. Even people who might not identify with classical definitions for religion or spirituality or God, um, there's a sense of mystery or a sense of the divine or a sense of something greater than ourselves. And in spiritual direction, I try to help people tune into that, uh, sort of like an old-fashioned radio with the knobs, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of static in our lives, and there are lots of ways in which we get in between us and God, and our mm -hmm. stuff gets in between us and God. And I think of a spiritual director's role as a person who, in an intentional way, helps a person to sift through all that stuff in their life to tune into the voice of God. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Denise, how, how do you feel about those terms? Yeah, I love that. Um, I heard it described recently as someone um, journeying with someone upstream against the current, helping them to find their source. And I loved that. Um, yeah, helping people to tap into to the divine within. Yeah. Will y'all tell me a little bit about how you initially engaged with spiritual direction? And, and I would imagine that it was not as spiritual directors. Denise, you're in the process of 
is it certification? It or, is. Okay. Yeah. You're in the you're in the final leg of your certification journey and Jesse, I know you've been an active spiritual director for a while, but I'm sure that you first engaged with it as um just people. And what was it about what was it initially that led you to the practice and led you to seek out a spiritual director and Sure. I was um, living in Nashville. It was in the late 90s, and I was working for um, a church. I was a youth director and really was introduced the first time, for the first time, to um, to spiritual disciplines like I never had been. Um, I mean, I grew up in the church. I was there every time the doors were open, but um, the spiritual disciplines were a new thing, and there was an associate minister that I was particularly close to that... Um, suggested that I try spiritual direction. I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was, didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I remember leaving the very first time. Um, so so I didn't really seek out. Um, the, the mentor of mine suggested that I see this person. And, um, and so I didn't, tr- you know, now they say, you know, try people out, interview them to see if it's a good connection because you want it to be a good connection. Um, but I remember leaving that first time, and um, and I'll get a little emotional, but because I remember walking out and feeling like I had bubble wrap all around me. And that's probably not a good descriptor, um, but I just felt like this protection. You felt seen and safe. Yes, yes, an incredibly safe and sacred space um, mm-hmm. where there is deep listening, holy mm-hmm. listening, um, and that's not that um I didn't coin that term. Um is it Margaret Gunther? Is that I, I who it is? Right. I think you're right. Yeah, Margaret Gunther wrote a book on it's called Holy Listening and it's about mm-hmm. spiritual direction. Um mm-hmm. so yeah, it was very meaningful. It actually helped um me just pay attention more to where God was moving in my life, um, and where God was leading me, which actually led to my move to Memphis. Wow, that's big. So spiritual direction helped you with some of that, um, we use the word discernment a lot in the church, but sort of like figuring out what you were meant to do. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, it, you know, it's Carl Jung that said, um, your job is to become um, who you were created to be rather than adapt and conform to what the culture told you to be. Um, so, Holy yes. words. So I sort of haphazardly wandered into it, not so unlike Denise. Um, I was starting college, so this was um, a little over 20 years ago, and I had had sort of an inkling that maybe I would want to work with the church in intentional ministry um, in some fashion. And in my tradition at the time, um, they actually had formation programs that started in college, and um, there was um, a clergy person who sort of tuned in to the fact I was interested in, in this more intentional way of getting involved in the life of the church and said, you need to get a spiritual director mm-hmm. and meet with them regularly. And since that time, I would say that what I have needed in spiritual direction and the type of spiritual directors that I've had have varied rather greatly. And I don't know that 20-something years ago that that spiritual director and um, their approach would be what I need at this moment in time. But it was helpful then. And it looked a little bit different. Um, And my sense of spirituality and prayer has really grown and unfolded um, and sort of budded like a flower in ways that I would never have imagined um, 20-something years ago. And I think one key to that has been the intentional practice of spiritual direction. Uh, which sort of classically is that once a month um, you sit down with somebody who is um, particularly trained in this type of listening, and for an hour you walk with them through where you're at on the spiritual journey. And yet I would say uh, that that's not where the spiritual director relationship ends. Uh, I always found great comfort in knowing that my spiritual directors were praying for me regularly throughout the rest of that month, not just mm-hmm. in the hour we were together. Mm-hmm. 
and, and sort of like with you, Denise, it made me feel like I had this support and I wasn't alone in trying to figure out who I was and what I was meant to be, but that there was somebody who was there taking um, this journey with me and, and helping be a sounding board as I tried to get answers to big questions in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of those, that, that's sort of some of the meat of spiritual direction are those big questions. Who am I? Uh, whose am I? What am I meant to do and to be? And I'm not sure how much in our lives we have space to tease out those questions. Um, I think I have a deep love of psychology, and that's where my background was before um, seminary. But, you know, at least in my approach, and Denise, you might have a, a little bit of a different approach because she has the therapy background. Um, but sort of you, you have a more of a diagnostic treatment approach in therapy, trying to help people fix things mm-hmm. um, and solve problems. But that's not necessarily what you do in spiritual direction. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like a very different sort of space to ponder these questions that you don't get in other compartments of life. I've always, just in thinking about therapy and mental health care, I've always done, well, I want to measure my words. All therapy is good therapy, in my humble opinion. Amen to that. I, I mean, that's, it's just, it's, it's been a part of my life since I was a teenager, and, and I cannot imagine where I would be today if I hadn't been given a space to talk things out in a therapeutic um, uh, context. But so no matter where you go, it's always good to do therapy. But for me, at least, the, the therapists and the counselors and the psychologists that I have known over the years, the ones who have been the most impactful for me are the ones who I can go in and literally just run my mouth for an hour and because that's how I work things out. And the, one, and the ones who don't tell me at the end of the session or say to me, okay, here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I want you to work on. I mean, and that's not right. That's not right for everybody, but that's the most, having someone who gives me the space to explore things that I think are crazy that are in my mind, ideas that I think are outlandish or completely unattainable or allow me to question things that I have always, you know, seen as precious or things that are like, no, we're not, we're not going to question these big, these big issues that are, that we as a culture tend to say define us. And it sounds like that is kind of, that that is similar to what you encounter when you're in a spiritual direction when you're working with a spiritual director is that you're not going to be i mean there there might be tasks tasks can't speak there might be tasks that you're assigned or points to think on but it's it's not so okay here's what i'm viewing as a problem let's triage it and fix it that's it's it almost sounds the way you're describing it is that the questions that arise and the things that you do jump into that are the things that in any other context you would be afraid to question you know who god is why we put him in a box why we tend to what we view as our discerned calling in our lives the things that we've always taken for granted the moment you abut those you're getting somewhere or you're just given a space to explore. What are the set? What do the sessions look like? I would say that every session is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because Definitely. you're, you're meeting with, you know, very, you know, we're all unique individuals, but you know, I know for mine, I usually start with, um, I might read a poem or I might, um, do some kind of relaxation or guided meditation. And then I always start with some silence and, and ask, they call it director and directee, but I agree with Jesse. I, I don't care for that term, but um, just 
for simplicity's sake, the directee, the person in spiritual direction, um, I just encourage them to break the silence whenever they're ready. Um, and so sometimes it's, you know, what um, what do you need for this to be today? Um, sometimes it starts like that. Sometimes it starts differently. They're all different. They're not. Um, I really love that question for so many reasons. Um, I think part of it is a pushback on on my part, to the classical notions of religion. And I can only speak for myself and how, and sort of how I grew up in, in the, my tradition of origin. But I had these sort of very defined, clear roles of who God is and what God might look like and how God might act. And then a sort of a corollary of that, um, I had this notion, I would say, for the majority of my life, that prayer was something we did and therefore there was a right way and a wrong or less right way to do it and there were better and more pathetic ways of doing it and that my job was to pray the best you know the gold star prayers to really impress god and part of my journey with spiritual direction has really revolutionized the way i think about god and about prayer and you could boil down that that shift in thinking to questions like, what do I need right now? Like in this moment with my spiritual director, what what do I need for today? And then also the bigger question, and this is not of my own making, but who do I need God to be for me? And often people mishear that as who do I need to be for God? Mm-hmm. Um, but God doesn't need us to be anything. God is God. The question that God wants us to consider is who do we need God to be for us right now? And I sometimes ask people that I work with that specific question, and I hear profound insights. Um, I need God to comfort me. I need God to hold me because I feel like my life is out of control mm-hmm. and is falling apart. I need God me and to strengthen me and to sort of be you know this divine bodyguard because I feel like so much is sort of under attack in my life I'm deeply indebted to a man named Martin Smith um, who he started as a monk um, in the Episcopal Church Um, actually he was Church of England at that time and and so he's probably got 45 or 50 years of experience with these sort of holy conversations and my shift in spirituality, and actually I never thought that I would, I had the gifts to be a spiritual director until Martin revolutionized the way that I thought about God and about spirituality. And, and then I've had a couple classes with him, but one of his, his favorite questions is, who do you need God to be for you in this moment? And it was in sort of sitting at, at that master's feet that something dramatically changed in my life and I realized that that prayer is not about doing anything but prayer is sort of a state of being it's a way of living it's a way of being in relationship with God or the divine and um, how I allow God to Fill my life, fill me, and help me be everything that God has ever dreamed for me to be. Um, and so now I would say there is no right or wrong way of praying. God welcomes it all. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that resonates at all with, yeah, with how you grew beautiful. up. Yeah. Well, okay, let's let's come down off of I I could talk about bigness and hugeness of God all day but brass tacks how do you how did you discern that this is what that that seeking out spiritual direction is not just something that you needed as a person of faith but you also knew that you wanted to you felt that call to be a spiritual director Denise you're I mean you're you've been going through this process for a little bit of time and now you're easing up into certification. 
can you talk a little bit about that journey for yourself? Sure. I think um, I think when I started spiritual direction, when I was in Nashville, I think there was a deep-seated desire maybe to do it one day. And I think I looked into a couple of programs, and there weren't near as many programs back then as there are now. They've like they're everywhere now, but um, it was cost prohibitive. Um, I had moved to Memphis and started a new job, and you know, the program that I was looking at required that you go away quarterly for two weeks, and that wasn't feasible. So it was actually the pandemic, and. Um, you know, I, I work in behavioral health, and so I was experiencing some of the same things that um, that our clients were experiencing, and I thought, I've got to do something. I've got to figure something out. And centering prayer had been something that had been very um, uh, influential, for lack of a better word, um, years ago, and I had, I had quit doing it at some point. And so I just started... Um, I started being very faithful to centering prayer, and it was through that time that um, spiritual direction came back up for me. Yeah. And so I just reached out to a few that I knew and asked them about the programs and started researching, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to apply and see what happens. And um, and so, yeah, I started in March of 21, and I'll finish um, in January, and um, it's been a really incredible process. Yeah. How, where are you doing it through? I am doing it through the Hayden Institute, and mm-hmm. that is in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is, I would recommend it wholeheartedly. But there are, there are so many pro- programs across the country now, and I'm really trying to figure out, and, and different focuses. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just really important to, to kind of do your research and figure out what um what's going to be what's going to be a good fit for you and Hayden has been incredible for me Jesse how did you wow um I talk way too much but um so uh I I love that that you have paired Denise and me together uh and one of the reasons is that our training and formation programs I think are pretty different and I, I, I think it sort of fleshes out the possibilities mm-hmm. for spiritual direction mm-hmm. um, so it sounds like from what I can glean that Denise has had sort of um, a more traditional um, sort of robust formation programming for being a spiritual director um, I did my training um, through a nonprofit called Still Harbor uh, which is in Boston mm-hmm. and I think it is fairly unique in that most spiritual direction training programs I have seen seem to sort of identify with one tradition. Um, so like maybe you go to a Jesuit school and um, you're doing their spiritual direction program and you learn a lot about their founder, St. Ignatius of Loyola, and um, the Catholic tradition and their approach to spirituality. Or you might do you know, sort of a Protestant, you maybe go to a Lutheran school and you get more of a Reformed view. Still harbor is not affiliated with any one tradition. Um, so it, it is sort of interspiritual and sort of did lots of work. I think it started as a nonprofit and then like around the Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Boston, um, it's in Boston, found itself doing chaplaincy work with um, all sorts of people. I mean, around the time too, I think as, as a city after the Boston Marathon bombings, there were, there were sort of helping going on all around. Some of that was by therapists and people helping to process the trauma. Um, Still Harbor found some demand there too, not just with the primary responders, but secondary trauma of people who were hearing these stories and who were trying to sift through um, how that fits with how I feel about the world and how I feel about a God who is in the midst of all this chaos and pain. And they started to do chaplaincy roles with those sorts of people and with a lot of young people sort of in these occupying Boston. And this is around the time, I think, that we sort of see an explosion of interest in spiritual direction from, I would say, sort of unlikely quarters. These aren't really churchy people showing up. But that there are all these people that suddenly say, maybe I don't identify as a churchgoer or as a practitioner of religion or as religious at all, but maybe I don't even know... I believe in God, 
but at the same time, I'm, I'm feeling this sense of something greater than myself, and they're starting to reach out for spiritual direction, and still Harper sort of stepped into that gap, and part of that means that in my training cohort, I had a humanist, I had Jews, um, Catholics, Baptists, um, AME, uh, African Methodist Episcopal, people who were all sort of doing this training together. And then as part, sort of classically, as you do this, um, they make you sort of do these role plays. I mean, not really role plays, because you are really listening to your, your classmates' um, spiritual journey, but you sort of practice these skills, and we were doing it together. And so I have sort of a, non, a non-sectarian approach. Now, if you ask me, like, you know, how should I pray or what are my tips for prayer, it doesn't mean I won't tell you <laughs> some possibilities. Yeah. But I'm going to start by saying, what has worked for you before? You know, what, what, have, you, what have you grown up with? Um, what are those experiences? And then maybe if you really want to hear what I do, at the end of the session, we can, we can spend five minutes talking about that. But I want to hear about what's worked in your life and tease through that. And my sense in working with these people are that even people who don't, aren't your traditional churchgoer, yet they all have a sense of something greater than ourselves. And whether you call it God, as I do, um, and, and in my tradition we believe God sort of is made intimately known in Jesus, but maybe God for you is more comfortable being termed as mystery or the divine. Regardless, spiritual direction can help you tease out um, what that all is going on in your life. And one of the things that I've been told by someone I care a lot about and think a lot of in discussing spiritual direction is that sometimes it is a good idea to find, if you're looking for a spiritual director, to find someone who can help you burst out of those rubrics and those things that, while they might have been helpful in another chapter, they eventually might become inhibiting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think sometimes when we come from the same tradition as the person we're working with, we might have some of the same pitfalls. Um, And having somebody from a different tradition can sort of help us to notice things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise know. Mm. So that, I mean, I think that's a real thing. But I totally agree. Sometimes what you need in one phase of life is not the same thing you need from a spiritual director. And and the sessions that you need are not going to look the same in another phase of life. See lots of nodding, Denise. (laughs) (laughs) You can't hear the nods. Yeah, and I I think like when I started 20 years ago in spiritual direction, it almost feels like a a baby Christian, but I I, I needed um, a lot more nuts and bolts practical suggestions. My spiritual directors were very good at providing that. I think once I started, and I had a church of my own in uh, the Boston suburbs for about nine years, and when I started into that, being sort of the, the primary person in leadership was just a whole different phase of life and experience, and I needed a different sort of spiritual director. Um, and for me at the time, so I, I have learned about myself that both in therapy and often in spiritual direction, I tend to get more out of it working with a female therapist or spiritual director than with a male. And so for that reason, often um, I'll look at that group I talked about, Spiritual Directors International, which is not the only group or the only way to find spiritual directors, but they have sort of a directory and a listing. And I went to that and looked at women in my area. And so I was an Episcopal priest. I ended up finding this um, Roman Catholic nun who was in her 80s that had been doing it forever. And gosh, and Denise, I was going to do the same thing that they recommend where you, you sort of interview three different directors and feel it out. But I had one um, person I tried, and we just had trouble connecting. And then I tried this second person. From the moment I talked to her, it just clicked. And we worked together for probably over eight years, Mm -hmm. um, every month. And she had a a more laid-back approach than some other directors. I have known some people who it's sort of a mystical encounter when you talk to them. They're so intuitive, and you, like, see these radical insights and these things unfolding. 
um, and sometimes that's really great, but with, with um, the sister that I was seeing, it was more of sort of a holy listening and that she was with me on the journey and she saw me through all sorts of stress and things that cropped up in my life and she saw me at my good and my bad. But that ongoing relationship allowed her to know me and to um, sense what I needed in a way that I don't think with an ongoing relationship we would have had. And I don't know that I would want to be with the same therapist for eight mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. But with her, she saw me through all of these things. And there are times, you know, when she would say, you're going through a rough patch right now. And I can help you, you know, find, find where God is at in all this. But having known you, I can tell you, I think that maybe some depression is going on here too. And I think you need to get back into therapy while we talk about the spiritual side and spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. And she knew mm -hmm. me well enough to know when those points came up. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, Denise, if any of that resonates with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So how, okay, how, how someone's in Memphis and they're listening to this and they're saying, okay, I never knew that this was, the spiritual direction was a thing. What's the first step in finding person is it the kind of thing where you can go to your pastor or your priest or clergy and say i'm interested in spiritual direction is there anybody you would recommend or how how would you to a person who's brand new to it how would y'all recommend someone seek out that director i mean i think you could certainly start there and um, depending on what tradition you're in, um, they may or may not even know about spiritual direction themselves, honestly. So true, yeah. And so, Some holes. yeah, definitely. But, um, you know, Jesse was talking about the Spiritual Directors International, and that is, um, yeah, not the only one, but that is a big database where you can go and search your area and see, and you can contact people, reach out to people that way. Um, you know, I belong to a spiritual director's peer group, and so I think there's some connecting between those folks. Um, but I don't know, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question because um, I think for a lot of people, you don't even know that something like this is out there. Um, and definitely, I think you could you could try talking to your pastor. That's a great first step. I don't know. I mean, just being completely vulnerable as as an ordained person before I really started to delve into the depths of spiritual direction, I think I would have been rather limited in how helpful I could be to someone mm -hmm. asking these questions. Mm -hmm. um, and it really was sort of my own awakening, and I guess it would be at the year before my first son was born, so this has been like 2015, that really all this sort of started to open up for me, and now I could be much more helpful. Um, and I don't work with my own parishioners. That's just, um, mm. I think, and so Denise, uh, as a fellow um, person in, in social work, will will appreciate this. But we sometimes dual roles uh, when you're when you have sort of two different relationships with a person. Can, you are a priest. Yeah, you're and it can be really difficult to navigate those boundaries. Um, so I have always, and, and not all priests feel this way. But if somebody in my congregation is looking for spiritual direction, I tell them I can't be theirs, and I refer them to somebody else. And part of that is because I need the people that I work with to be brutally honest about where they are in their life. And so, like, if church isn't working for you on Sunday mornings or the sermons are just coming across as flat, you need to be able to tell your spiritual director exactly how that's feeling and that can be hard to do if it's your pastor who you love who is delivering those sermons to say, hey, your yeah. sermons aren't doing the job for me. Yeah. For that reason, I, I prefer to let my pastoring be in a different realm than spiritual direction. But yeah, I mean, there are these directories. Um, I always say with the caveat, um, there are membership fees in Spiritual Directors International. And there are some that you get listed in the directory and some you don't get listed in the directory. So just because someone is listed there doesn't mean they're going to be great for you. Mm -hmm. And just yeah. because someone's not listed there doesn't mean they're not going to be great yeah. for you. Yeah, and sometimes you don't know until you talk to the person. Yeah. Um, and I will say, so most spiritual directors 
especially if they are involved in Spiritual Directors International, are going to be really comfortable with you talking to a couple different people and trying out um, Spiritual Direction and their approach. And uh, so sometimes um, a Spiritual Director will receive sort of an honorarium, sort of like a modest um, payment for those services. No one should ever be asking you for that on the first session. Yeah, because uh, yeah. you're both still trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. If it's if it, how do you deal with payment or or like if it's I keep on wanting to go back to well when you're in therapy blah 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 blah. But I know that there's so many nuanced differences. I would say that everybody is different on that. I mean, there are some that are really, they're doing it because they feel like it's their call and they're giving back um, and don't charge. I, I think that's probably in the minority, though. Um, I think most most of the spiritual directors I know do charge, um, but that varies. Um, so, Yeah, and I think also, um, as a spiritual director, I would never want finances to be the barrier. And so, and in fact, there are some people I'll work, I, I just tend to work with a lot of um, people in formation process who are looking at being ordained. And sometimes when you're back in school, finances are tight, and I'll just tell them, I don't expect anything. You know, I just, I just want to help. And, and certainly there are some people who feel like sort of this is, this is their calling and also their line of work. Um, I never seek to have a large number of spiritual directees because I feel like, just logistically, I want to be able to pray for the people I work with every day and to be cognizant of them and that I can only rationally do that for a finite number of people, maybe a handful of people. And so I'll only have a few directees any time um, because that, that I can't, I don't feel like I can do the meaningful work I want to do, you know, with 40 people. So I have, you know, three or four. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or anything that's on your heart that you would like to share? You know, sometimes spiritual directors either have a, you know, literal or figurative third chair that God is really the director um, and that you are there just um, listening on behalf, on, on your directee's behalf um, to what God, where God is moving in their life, mm. where God is um, speaking to them where yeah. God is present in their life. And so I have that third chair image, and I don't generally have a physical chair, but I do talk about the third chair. Um, hmm. Hmm. You mentioned, you brought some poems, Denise. And I did. Do you want to share something that has been meaningful to you? I would. I'd love to. Um, it's my new favorite book of poetry. It's called Soul Bird. Um, it's by Deborah Ann Quibell. And um, and there were just a couple that I just that I really felt like kind of get to the root of spiritual direction. Please share. I'm a glutton for a good uh, a good poem share. A wooden altar. You came here with a calling. If you have wandered far from the lake of your longing, stop, notice your thirst, and build a wooden altar. Wrap your doubt in a silk cloth and lay it down on the weathered planks. You don't need to exhaust yourself or feel unworthy any longer. You don't have to prove anything or accumulate piles and piles of wisdom. Your sacred practice is one of realizing your soul map. It's not something you find out of luck or excavate from a blistering dig, but something you discover out of opening to inevitability. I don't know. That one just made me think of spiritual direction and, and what a spiritual direction, um, what a spiritual director can be in a person's life helping you... Mm. Um, Mm, yeah. Helping you really. Um, it's like what Jesse was saying earlier about just making sense out of chaos. Yeah. There's a lot. And especially now. I, I think there's always been a lot. Being a human has never been easy. But 
there is something specific about being a human in the year 2022 and having so much information and so much weighing on us. We have it all at our fingertips. Anything you really, I mean, we're in a position where if we want to know something, know about something, we can learn about it. And with that, we have a lot at our fingertips. And I think that sometimes we see that as a luxury and it's really not. Um, it's hard to find stillness and silence and to tease it out of all of the distractions and horrors that we encounter on a daily basis. And, and finding God in the midst of that chaos. Well, and it's not what our culture values. Mm -mm. I mean, we value, you know, productivity and being busy is valued. And um, so it's not encouraged to stop and be still and try to listen to the still, small voice. Mm. Well, thank you both for this really holy conversation. Um, I really, I appreciate both of your, both of you just as people and, I love you both and value your friendship and I just am so grateful that there are people out there like y'all who are shining that light for others and helping them encounter big, hard questions with bravery and with hope and uh, leaving a space for that small voice that, that sometimes we forget to listen to. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Faithfully Memphis. You can listen to past episodes of Faithfully Memphis on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you could do us a huge favor and Uh, Find us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review or rating. That is tremendously helpful in helping us spread the word about our show. You can learn more about the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee and all of our churches and ministries at edwtn.org. This is Emily Austin. Thanks.